Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Hey, are there any parents out there with newborn babies or children? If so, do you wish you knew more about the inherited risks of disease that your baby or your child might have? After all, if they have inherited a mutated gene, they very likely inherited it from either you or your partner. It's estimated that about one out of every 200 people do have a mutation of their DNA that will eventually cause some sort of medical problem. Now, you know, newborns are already tested for inherited diseases. It's actually the law. Here in Kentucky, for instance, the last I heard, it was 52 diseases that they check for. Many of these diseases are checked by drawing blood from the baby's foot, and they test for specific biochemical markers for diseases like cystic fibrosis, sickle cell anemia, congenital heart disease, hyperthyroidism, things like that. 52 different diseases. And out of that, there are usually 100 or 200 cases of disease discovered this way in babies born in Kentucky every year. The problem with this kind of testing of newborns is that not all genetic diseases can be measured with a simple biochemical test. For instance, diseases that show up later in life, like early onset Alzheimer's or inherited deafness, when it doesn't show up until you're a teenager or in your early 20s. That's not going to show up in a biochemical test of a newborn baby. Well, five years ago, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, they started funding research projects, or four research projects specifically. And these projects are looking at the possibility of examining the DNA of newborn babies to screen them for potential diseases. One of the reasons this is possible now is because determining our DNA sequence is getting much cheaper, and it's getting less expensive every year. This particular study was published on January 3, 2019, in the journal called the American Journal of Genetics. It resulted from a collaboration of medical researchers at various hospitals in Boston, New York City, and Houston. And what they did is they got a sample of DNA from 159 different newborn babies that had been born in Boston. 127 of these 159 babies were healthy at birth. 32 of them, however, were already showing signs of illness. And what they did with the DNA from these 159 babies was look at the exomes of each child. They didn't actually sequence the entire chromosomal DNA of each of these babies because that would cost a whole lot more. They focused on the exomes, which is that part of our genome that actually codes for proteins. Why not just look at the really important parts of our DNA? That's what they're doing here. Now, exomes only make up about 1.5% of our genome, so you really do save money by just focusing on the exomes. What they found was that 15 of these 159 babies had a DNA variation that did put them at risk of an inherited disease that would affect them in childhood. 
So that's more than 9% of these babies had a genetic mutation that would result in some sort of disease as a child. That's a very high number. Another 3.5% of the babies had a mutation that's likely going to result in a disease when they are adults. So to summarize, that's about 12 to 13% of these babies had a DNA mutation that is medically relevant. That's about one out of every eight kids. Now, 15 of these babies had genetic mutations that would cause disease to a child. And out of those 15, 10 of them, however, were not showing signs of illness at the time of the study, while the other five were already in the intensive care unit for babies, the ICU. A couple of these DNA mutations were in genes linked to heart disease. Two were linked to one of the breast cancer genes, BRCA2. One is involved in vitamin metabolism, and one is for hearing loss in teenagers. 140 of the 150 babies were carriers for a genetic disease, meaning that they had one mutated allele, or one version that was mutated, so that while they typically wouldn't show signs of that disease because they only have one mutation instead of two, they would have a chance of passing that mutation onto their children. That's a very high proportion, 140 of the 150 babies were carriers, that's 93% of them. The most common example of a disease gene that babies were carrying was for cystic fibrosis, which is a respiratory disease. But another common example were genes affecting whether a person has adverse reactions to specific medications. This paper discusses the benefits of testing the DNA of newborn babies like if they do appear to be susceptible to disease that is treatable, and most of them are in some way or another, then this early diagnosis might help prevent the symptoms from developing so readily, or that the babies could just be treated earlier. And then some of these diseases could be ameliorated by changes in diet, exercise, or other lifestyle changes. That could be a great thing. On the other hand, there's quite a heavy psychological impact for both the parents and or other family members to hear this bad news about the child. And if relayed to the child later as they grow up, it could be stressful for that kid, too. And not all of these DNA variations necessarily guarantee 100% that the disease is going to develop. There are a lot of extenuating circumstances affecting the incidence of the disease, the timing, the severity. So it really shouldn't be thought of as a 100% guarantee that that person is going to develop a specific disease. And finding out that a person is a carrier of a disease gene could interfere with their relationships in the future. Knowing that they're a carrier for cystic fibrosis, for instance, is that child going to grow up looking for a reproductive partner who is not a carrier? Because it's only when two carriers have children together that there's this large chance of having a child with a disease. That chance would be 25% if two carriers had children. I found this article to be really provocative. So for $200 per child, we can perform all of those traditional biochemical blood tests that the state is currently requiring, that's $200, but for $3,000, we can determine the sequence of that person's entire exome. Is it worth it? Can the person emotionally handle all of this genetic information about themselves? And can their parents handle it? And can their eventual offspring deal with it, for that matter? 
is there concern about who has access to all that genetic information? Health insurance companies, our employers, our government. And is there any risk that this data could be misinterpreted, perhaps due to future scientific advancements, we learn things that we don't know right now, or due to the patient's lack of education about genetics? There's so many questions to be addressed. Thanks. Now, here's an essay by Professor Scott Miller on critical thinking and how it's not just for science anymore. I read an interesting article in the March 12th edition of Physics Today that may have some bearing on conversations at the political level today. The article's title was the provocative, Venus is not Earth's closest neighbor. The article starts by listing the current findings one would make if one did a search via search engine or simply grabbed a general text on astronomy, or even visited some reputable sites such as those of NASA. It then concludes that these references are an error based on a preferred definition of the authors of what it means to be close. According to the article, if averaging is done by a method provided by the authors, Mercury turns out to be Earth's nearest neighbor, and in general, Mercury is the nearest neighbor of all the planets of the solar system. So, from the perspective of the authors, the definition of what it means to be closest to Earth is incorrect in those other references. The premise of the authors was that if one looks at the time of orbit of all eight planetary bodies, because Mercury is closest to the Sun, it orbits faster than the others. This makes it possible for Mercury to be nearer to the other planets of the solar system more often than any other. Averaging over time, one can conclude that Mercury is closer, on average, simply because it is on the same side of the Sun as any one planet more often. Now, mathematical game-playing is all fun and good, but what was really interesting was not this attempt of correcting misconceptions of what is meant by the word near, but the subsequent discussion that erupted on the website where I found this article. There were some that concluded that one can physically construct the same model with pencil, paper, and wine glasses of different sizes, so this mathematical proof was not necessary. Others were taken aback because of the tone of the article, as if the authors were impugning the intelligence of the readers. Still others questioned the usefulness of such a discovery, since rocket trips to any of the other planets would be based on when Earth and that planet will be closest to each other physically, not just on average. But a few pointed out something that comes closer to the truth about the article. The quote one of the responders, This article is really about a lack of precision in the language. People speak of the closest planet when they mean the closest orbit. Others came to a similar conclusion as this one respondent. This really makes a point about this article and the general communications that we engage in in everyday life. Words have meaning. Unfortunately, in today's world, the meaning ascribed to words often comes from who is doing the speaking. One hears an oratory from a speaker that one has respect for, or who one feels is on the same side as oneself, and can completely understand what that person says and feels there is truth in what that person said. On the other hand, one can hear nearly the same thing coming from an orator for which one's feelings are less than good, and a completely different translation is heard, leading to a rejection of the words. This is not a rejection because of what was said, but who said it.
Our body politic has moved away from the concept of compromise is a good thing if the end result is the betterment of the country as a whole. Now it has turned toward the concept that compromise is a sign of weakness and should be shunned in favor of our ideas being superior to those of the other side. In a real sense, the mindset in America today tends toward that of some sort of athletic competition and us-versus-then mentality. This does not help the country as a whole, but only helps those that want to foment this mindset. Extremists on both the left and the right have drawn the spotlight to their pet causes and have attempted to rally the rest of us to their side. Gone are the ideas that we try to espouse in the sciences, the idea of gathering as much data as possible, not just data that supports our notion of a particular topic, but data that might not do so. Critical thinking, as this is referred to, is becoming a lost art in this win-at-all-cost state we find ourselves in. A simple definition of critical thinking could be, critical thinking is the analysis of facts to form a judgment. The subject is complex, and several definitions exist, which generally include rational, skeptical, unbiased analysis, or evaluation of factual evidence. There are several key points here. Analysis of fact to form judgment. Rational, skeptical, unbiased analysis. Evaluation of factual evidence. Science courses in school, while teaching about certain topics of that particular science, were also about learning how to apply critical thinking to a set of observations. It was all about how to look at factual data and draw conclusions from it. Not only was this type of thinking critical to the sciences, but it also has application well beyond the science classroom to everyday situations. Take, for example, the concept of climate change. There is much factual information that has been brought forth from many different scientists interested in this topic. They have looked at the data that has been collected and drawn conclusions based on that data. Unfortunately, the conclusions drawn by these scientists are not comfortable to many people. For example, one conclusion is that climate change seems to be driven beyond what normally happens here on Earth by the contribution of humans. Some see this as challenging their worldview and vilify the results without providing any data to support this vilification. For example, one hears that if something is done to mitigate the effects of climate change, it will cost jobs. Those that work in the coal field see these conclusions as a direct attack on their jobs and the reason coal jobs are disappearing. In reality, it is known that a move away from coal is driven in boardrooms of energy companies and their quest for profits, not in the laboratories of these scientists. And politicians that are in the pocket of these energy companies stoke the fear of the coal miners in a quest for votes. Vilification with no support. Or look at the anti-vax movement. Time and again, evidence is presented that there is no connection between certain vaccines and autism. But thanks to a lack of critical thinking, parents desperate to understand why their child is autistic or other parents that fear that their child may become autistic cling to this unsupported notion because it is simpler for them to grasp onto than the more challenging process of critical thinking. Applying critical thinking would force them to look at all the facts, and they are too busy to worry about facts in the face of what they view as a simple reason not to have children vaccinated. So I would urge any and all listeners to this broadcast to step back and take a deep breath. Remove the bias from one's mind of this us-versus-them thinking. Take a cold, hard, unbiased look at climate change, recycling, 
alternative fuel sources, or any of the other topics covered in these radio broadcasts. Listen with your head, not your heart. Ask questions, then ask more questions. Gather the data necessary to make you a better American citizen instead of just a team player. And maybe, just maybe, we can actually begin the journey of moving this country ahead again, rather than remaining in the stagnant mire we find ourselves in now, where thinking critically has become a lost art, and compromise is a bad word. Thanks, Scott. Hey, if you're interested in learning more about critical thinking, you should listen to another show that is broadcast on this radio station, WFMP 106.5. It's called Critical Thinking for Everyone. It's hosted by our colleagues Patty Payette and Brian Barnes. And it's a great show for learning the techniques and theories around critical thinking. They always seem to come up with some pithy examples and I never hear the show without learning something and laughing a little bit. Their show is broadcast on WFMP 106.5 every Thursday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, and then again on Friday at midnight and 11 o'clock that morning. They also have a Facebook page, and their podcasts are available on forwardradio.org. So check it out. It's called Critical Thinking for Everyone. Well, we've lost another great scientist activist who passed away recently, Dr. Bill Jenkins, the government epidemiologist who tried to expose the unethical Tuskegee study of men with syphilis back in the 1960s has died. He died in February in South Carolina. He was 73 years old. Bill Jenkins, who was African-American, was always an activist. While in high school, he registered people in South Carolina to vote. And while in college, he joined the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC. At one point, he was arrested along with Congressman John Lewis for protesting the white-only restaurant in Georgia owned by infamous segregationist and Governor Lester Maddox. Bill Jenkins got his bachelor's degree in mathematics from the historically black Morehouse College. After graduating, he began working for the National Center for Health Statistics, as one of the first black commissioned officers there. While on staff at the Public Health Service, he published a newsletter called The Drum, which was geared to employees there that were experiencing racial discrimination. And it was in the 1960s that Dr. Bill Jenkins first heard about the infamous Tuskegee study. This was a federal Public Health Service research project started in 1932 as a way of monitoring the history of the sexually transmitted disease syphilis. This study was called the Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male, and the Public Health Service said they started it as a way to justify more treatment of this disease in blacks. This study involved 600 black men, about 400 of them had syphilis, and 200 didn't. Researchers only told the subjects that they were being treated for, quote, bad blood. The subjects were not offered informed consent like they should have been, because it means that the research would have had to have full disclosure if they had informed consent. That means that the government would have to explain the purpose and the methodology of the experiment to the patient before the study was initiated. In this case, the government did not do that. So for a research project involving human subjects to be initiated, there's supposed to be what they call capacity. 
This means that the subject actually understands what it is they're getting into in terms of the risks and the benefits of the study. And finally, informed consent means that the subject is truly free to join the research project without external pressure like coercion, manipulation, or undue influence. And it also means they can get out whenever they want. The patients in the Tuskegee study were not really given the proper treatments known at the time to cure their disease, syphilis. For instance, the study began in 1932 and it went on for 40 years, but penicillin, an antibiotic that became the drug of choice to treat syphilis, came on the scene in 1947, only 15 years after the initiation of the study. But penicillin was never offered to the patients. Before penicillin came on the scene, the primary treatment for syphilis was arsenic, and that's what the Tuskegee subjects continued to receive throughout the period of the study, 40 years, even though penicillin was available. The subjects weren't even told about the penicillin option. This study was originally projected to only go six months, but it kept getting extended and ended up going for 40 years. And one of the problems with that is that syphilis is usually transmitted by sexual contact. It causes brain damage, paralysis, blindness, death. So some of the men ended up infecting their wives, and some of the wives would even pass it on to their children. The Tuskegee study didn't end until 1972, and that was largely due to the actions of Dr. Bill Jenkins. Now, it was a colleague that told Dr. Jenkins about the Tuskegee study while it was still going on, but not too much detail. But Dr. Jenkins did some research, and he actually found dozens of articles about the research project, articles that had been published in medical journals. Even the local chapters of the American Medical Association appeared to support the Tuskegee study. When Bill Jenkins questioned the ethics of the study and spoke to his supervisor about it, the supervisor's response was, quote, don't worry about it. He later learned that the supervisor was one of the people who were actually monitoring the study. So Dr. Jenkins and some colleagues wrote an article about this and sent it to other African-American doctors and to a few reporters, but it really wasn't picked up by the news media. Eventually, another health service epidemiologist, Peter Buxton, who's white, gave the information to the Associated Press. The AP article appeared on the front page of the New York Times and elsewhere, and it just shocked the nation. So the study was soon halted after widespread attention was received. Bill Jenkins devoted the rest of his life towards trying to reduce disease among African Americans and other people of color, in part by recruiting more such people into the public health professions. After the Tuskegee revelation, Bill Jenkins went back to school to receive a master's degree in public health and then a Ph.D. in epidemiology in 1983. And it was about this time that he became one of the first researchers at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to see how dramatically AIDS was affecting black men. According to the New York Times, he helped organize the first conference on AIDS in underserved neighborhoods. It became the CDC's Director of AIDS Prevention for Minorities. And for 10 years, Dr. Jenkins oversaw the government's Participants Health Benefits Program, which provides free lifetime medical care to the men of the Tuskegee study and their eligible family members. 
Apparently, Dr. Jenkins fought successfully to expand the benefits for survivors and their families, ensuring that health care, like nursing homes, would be covered in addition to medical care. The last widow receiving benefits died in 2009, but there are still 12 offspring who are still affected by syphilis, and they are still receiving health care due to the work of Dr. Jenkins. According to the New York Times obituary for Dr. Jenkins, he was also among those who helped extract an official apology from the U.S. federal government for the Tuskegee study. It was in 1997, President Bill Clinton invited the surviving eight subjects of the Tuskegee study and their families to the White House. Five of the survivors went, and on May 16th, Mr. Clinton delivered a formal apology on behalf of the country. President Clinton said, quote, No power on earth can give you back the lives lost, the pain suffered, the years of internal torment and anguish. What the United States government did was shameful, and I'm sorry. Unquote. This apology is commemorated every year at the National Center for Bioethics and Research in Healthcare which is located at Tuskegee University, the government paid for this center as part of the apology, and Dr. Jenkins actually helped establish this National Center for Bioethics and Research. Later in his career, Dr. Jenkins founded the Society for the Analysis of African American Public Health Issues, which is still an active organization devoted to eliminating health inequities due to race. This Society for the Analysis of African American Public Health Issues did publish an obituary for Dr. Jenkins recently, and it said that Dr. Jenkins, quote, challenged rhetoric and practice that would perpetuate the misnomer that race, rather than racism, is the cause for the unjust and inequitable prevalence of disparate health outcomes forced upon racial ethnic minorities. In addition, Dr. Jenkins was a caring mentor with a heart for the mentorship of students student leaders, and early career researchers and professionals, unquote. Rest in peace, Dr. Jenkins. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page, just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time. 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, 
your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.